Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for a foray into the world of Aquarians from a slightly different perspective. You know, as Aquarists, we spend a good part of our time trying to figure out how to keep our fishes healthy and happy. That's nothing new. And as dedicated natural aquarium enthusiasts, we take it to a level deeper and we try to recreate as many of the features of our fish's natural habitats as possible, which is awesome and commendable. Now, today we're going to take the most cursory look uh, at a couple of unique habitats, pretty much polar opposites of each other, to sort of facilitate the idea that I have in my head about topography and its influence on the aquatic environment. I know very esoteric, but it's something I think about. I think about it every time I see a picture of or walk by a stream or you know, go for a swim in the, in the ocean and see you know, a, a, a reef or something. By studying these kind of habitats, we're seeing for ourselves sort of the unique possibilities that are out there to replicate them in the aquariums. And I think it goes beyond just creating cool-looking habitats when it comes to things like wood or botanicals or rock. It really calls us to investigate other factors, such as currents and underwater topographic features of these systems, you know, the contours of the bottom and so forth. And it's about exploring how these features affect the life habits of our fishes. And there's a reason why fishes aggregate and live out their lives in specific environmental niches. It goes beyond just the presence of leaves or the acidity or the alkalinity of the water or whatever. The physical structures and flow patterns which make up the streams, rivers, and other aquatic habitats are really a fascinating study in and of themselves. And yeah, there are many different habitats where physical barriers in the water affect the underwater environment. For example, I'm fascinated by what stream ecologists call riffles, which are defined as shallow sections of stream with a rapid current and a surface broken by gravel, rubble, boulders, or branches, with a moderately fast-flowing current and mostly sandy bottom with tree roots, leaves, driftwood, small rocks and pebbles, and home to fishes like ooh, darter kerosens and neat stuff like that. Now, these riffles are considerably more significant in the wet season, obviously, when the uh, impact of higher water volumes are present. They're really fascinating habitats to explore, and they're interesting to replicate in our aquariums. Now, in many uh, aquatic habitats, riffles have well-defined margins and barriers, which divert and alter, you know, the flow patterns of the water, kind of like dams or locks or whatever. And often these features are created by stuff like fallen trees or branches, and they become semi-permanent or even permanent features to the underwater landscape. And interestingly, in South America, for example, you'll find an unexpected abundance of some species of fishes familiar to us as hobbyists in these riffles. Some scientists have even postulated that the higher presence of fishes like nocturnal predators in these pools adjacent to the more active riffles may increase the number of species that seek refuge in the riffles to avoid them. So, in other words, the predators don't like to go into these environments. So the fishes that are commonly preyed on are like, hey, I'm getting out of here. So fishes like rivulus, which live in more intermittent pools along the stream edges outside the main stream channels, are normally found at night in these riffles because everybody eats them. So protection from predators, survival, is a powerful motivation for fishes to seek out these different habitats. Now, granted, in the aquarium, we're almost guaranteed not to keep predator and prey in the same tank, at least not for long-term purposes, unless we're sadistic or something. But is there not something to be gained by replicating these environments because the behaviors of the fishes are more natural, perhaps? And think about other things. Reduction of stress. 
fostering of natural behaviors, even if they're not necessary for survival. I can't help but wonder if, you know, providing some of these more specific environmental conditions in concert with stuff like water chemistry and the presence of stuff like leaves and stuff could facilitate greater possibilities for spawning long-term health and greater lifespan, maybe. I think it's entirely possible. I think we need to look beyond just the, the cool aesthetic of natural habitats from where our fishes hail. It's a complete package sort of thing. Application of water movement, something that we've talked about in reef aquariums for decades to facilitate natural responses and long-term health in our animals, has a place in almost every type of natural aquarium, I think, doesn't it? Even fresh water. I, I'm certainly thinking that it does. So I say dust off those power heads, you know, reconsider the way that you return or move water about in your aquarium. Evaluate the underwater topography of the natural environments and the life habits of the fishes from these locales, especially if you're keeping them. Further, rethink how things like lighting patterns, rain, etc. influence our fishes. Look beyond just the initial stuff. Consider how we might apply this information that we can gain from the natural ecosystems to better the lives of the fishes in our aquariums. These types of nuances play an important role in helping us recreate some of the more interesting aquatic habitats of the world. And while we're on interesting, let's go to another one. We've talked about this one before, but it's something I want to touch on again. It's a complete opposite of a, a riffle environment because it's generally a little more sluggish. It's a fascinating, sluggish, lagoon-like feature in South America known as a morishal. A morishal is essentially a lowland stream found in savanna areas of South America, the Amazon River, the upper Rio Negro drainage, all those areas, Orinoco, etc. The habitat's dominated by a certain type of palm tree known as the Morish palm, Mauritia flexiolosa, which the name may ring a bell to you because we offer some components from uh, from time to time from those like like brac uh, bracts and uh, seed pods and things. So um, it also has extensive riparian vegetation around the margins. The interesting thing about that Morish palm is that it only grows where its roots can be underwater. How could we not love that, right? And it's typically found in groups, hence the term Morishal, which refers to a group of them. Now, Morishals are considered important ecosystems for the maintenance of freshwater, you know, fishes in lowland savannas. The, they're monodominant, meaning one species, stands of the palm and its associated growths, the other plants that grow with it, provide really important food sources to a great number of species, ranging from monkeys to birds and, of course, to fishes. Although they're typically supplied with underground water sources throughout the year, these streams really swell with water during periods of seasonal flooding. And the riparian vegetation and the sandy substrates are all over the place there. And when you have trees, vegetation, and seasonal influx of water, utilizing botanicals in your aquarium representation of this habitat is just par for the course, right? This is the perfect thing to do. The habitat itself has an abundance of botanical debris, uh, leaves, macroalgae, fallen branches, palm fronds, and matrix of roots, and even some flood, you know, terrestrial grasses that may have been flooded during the, the wet season. And with terrestrial plants growing right up to the water's edge, the possibilities to create a really cool display are unlimited. I mean, with a little creativity, you could simulate the growth of the riparian vegetation and this, you know, the submerged terrestrial grasses, uh, along with all that interesting underwater topography. And incorporating riparian plants in our displays is something we've talked about and toyed with here for some time. I've cultivated some riparian plants like acarus for the past couple of years, you know, which I'm going to use someday in a paludarium type replication of this habitat. I've been talking about it forever. I think when I get my new house, I'm going to finally do something with that, build a, build a new system. I think a paludarium would open up some really unique aesthetic possibilities to push the boundaries of creativity when representing the Morishal environment. In the past, I've even experimented with these, uh, what are called cat palms, uh, Chemiodora catacaractum, which is a strange and twisted name, but uh, it's a commonly available, almost like a house plant. And I've rooted them in, 
you know, leaf-strewn, shallow sand substrate. It's a sort of micro-morishal. Oh, created a trend. That's a hashtag. Micro-morishal. Anyway, I know this concept can work. I played with it. Um, a lot more experimentation in this area can no doubt yield some cool results. And of course, whenever you have these rather complex physical habitats, you end up with a diversity of life and food sources, and hence fishes which are suitable to ex- uh, suited to exploit them. Um, here's an interesting summary I found from a study I encountered on Morishal habitats. Let me read this to you. In structurally complex habitats, specialist species can also exploit specific food resources to which they are morphologically or physiologically adapted to utilize. For example, in vegetated patches, we find a relatively high abundance of small cichlids and dorated catfishes with different body shapes and feeding habits, i.e. epistogramma and such, etc. But small omnivorous carasids with less diverse body morphologies such as tetras of the, gera, of the genera Moncausia and Hemigramus dominate the open and shallow beaches. In other words, the areas where there's not as much um, vegetation or submerged wood and so forth. Literal habitats containing woody debris and leaf litter also might support higher primary and secondary productivity, which provides fishes with more foraging opportunities on a larger variety of substrates. Are you getting that? That's pretty cool, right? So although the water in, in these habitats, these Morishals, is largely clear, as in not typically turbid, they can be, they are usually stained with tannins, and they're typically acidic in pH, usually around 6.0 or less. And they have a significant amount of roots and tangled stuff from the terrestrial and riparian vegetation surrounding them. And there's not a huge amount of water movement. You'll find lots of palm leaves, fruits, and seed pods submerged in the substrate of the Morishals. And it makes sense because things fall off these trees, right? And of course, that's where we come in, right? As botanical lovers. Um, what would be good botanicals to use in representing this habitat? Well, obviously some of the palm-derived materials would be good. Uh, since palms are an important part of this habitat, it would only make sense that these materials form an important part of your aquascape, right? Yeah, it does. So sort of scattering these materials along the bottom would create a pretty good replication of the Morishal environment. I'd probably not go too crazy in terms of variety. Rather, I'd limit my selection to just a few. Uh, sort of emphasize the abundance of several dominating plant species in the uh, above the waterline. Just sort of a little homage to that. And although the Morishal is not as productive as like the main rivers of the Amazon themselves, these environments often contain dozens of different fish, fish species, as alluded to above, in relatively small areas, including kerosens, catfishes, dwarf cichlids, etc., etc. And you get unusual kerosen species like Hemiodius, and occasionally you'll get you know, fish like that, that would make an amazing display. Even the green neon tetra, one of my favorite fishes, the Paracaridon simulans, is known to come from the Morishals as well. Oh, and dwarf pike cichlids are often found in Morishal environments. That's pretty cool. Dwarf pike cichlids are awesome. And of course, more popular kerosens like pencil fishes and even epistogramma um, and uh, mesonautia. Boy, do I butcher this name all the time. Is it pronounced... Mesonautia, mesonauta insignis or mesonauta? You tell me. I don't know. But anyways, it's, it's a dwarf cichlid that is cool. And if you Google it with my butchered pronunciation, you'll probably find a picture of it and you'll be like, yeah, it is a cool fish. I still don't know how to pronounce it, but whatever. Um, and that'll give kind of a neat look to your display. As a subject for a riparian study, the, the Morishal environment represents a near perfect opportunity to sort of stretch your aquatic creativity while highlighting some pretty well-known fishes and a not very often replicated niche. Think of the creative possibilities here, even if you can't pronounce all the names of the fishes, right? And there you have it. So I've given you a brief summary, very brief summary, of two completely different, even opposite types of aquatic habitats. Both are seldom replicated or perhaps not really thought about. 
yet they're perfect for aquarium representations. And both are influenced significantly by underwater topography and stuff that falls into the water. We have no shortage of wood and botanical materials to experiment with and replicate these environments within the aquarium world. Redirecting flow, creating hiding places for fishes, fostering epiphytic growth of biofilms and stuff. That's just a few of the items to check off on the to-do list when you're recreating the functional and aesthetic aspects of these kind of unique niches. This is a lot of fun, I think. So the message here, dive deeper. Consider the complete package the next time you set up an aquarium, not just the look. I know I, I said it over and over again, but it's, it's a great point. And I think we all need to sort of arrive at that. You might just find that you're pushing the needle on the state of the art of the aquarium hobby just a bit further, right? You might actually just have a lot of fun with this thing, even if you're not trying to change the world. I think so. So stay thoughtful, stay creative, stay motivated, stay resourceful, stay diligent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tannin.